Turn your Bibles as we continue our sermon series from the first epistle, the first letter of Peter. Snapshots of the Almighty. Snapshots of the Almighty. When I say God, what images come to your mind? There are surely more than a million answers to that question, perhaps because God has worn almost every hat under the sun. As we continue this sermon series from Peter's first letter, we need to remember that Peter is writing to predominantly a Gentile audience. Look over at chapter 1, verse 18. The very end of verse 18, your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers. These are Gentiles who have not been following Yahweh. Your futile way of life inherited from your Gentile forefathers. You see, the Jews already knew about Yahweh. All they needed to do was to understand that this rabbi by the name of Jesus was his Messiah, his Holy One, the Anointed One of Israel. But when you're teaching Gentiles, like Peter is here, you have to begin by telling them all about God. Before you can tell them about the Son, they have to learn first about the Father. In our first sermon in the series on 1 Peter, we learned that God's people have inherited eternal life. A salvation which began when they were born again and is finally fully fulfilled at the second coming of the Christ. Remember, they were born again to a living hope. We have this inheritance which is the salvation of our souls and it is death-proof and time-proof and reach-proof and sin-proof. Death cannot take away our salvation, we learned in the last sermon. Our salvation will not fade away like the morning flower at the noonday sun. Our salvation is not nullified by our sin. It is undefiled. It cannot be stained. It's washed in the blood of Jesus. It is based on the character of Christ and not we ourselves. And it is in the realm of heaven, which means it is beyond the reach of the catastrophes of the created earth. Look at 1 Peter 1.4. To remind you of last sermon in the series. To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, that means it's death-proof, is undefiled, that means it's sin-proof, will not fade away, it is time-proof, reserved for you in heaven, that it is, it is reach-proof beyond earth. In verse 9, he tells them that they eventually obtain the salvation of their souls. In verse 8, he says that they have a joy which is inexpressible, full of glory, because of the inheritance we have as God's children. And then verses 10 through 12, he says the prophets of old look and search as to what time they were speaking about the salvation of God. And they learned that they were not writing or prophesying for their own day, but for your day, the day among those in whom the gospel is preached. In fact, he tells them there at the end of verse 12 that you have received the good news of Jesus that angels have longed to hear. It has come to, it is, it has come to you. So it begins in our text today in verse 13. Therefore, having this salvation, the salvation of our souls, 
Hearing the good news of the gospel that the angels would stand on tiptoes and lean in to hear the word of the prophets fulfilled in your day. Therefore, he says, look at verse 13. Therefore, gird your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Therefore, since you have this great inheritance, the salvation of your souls, which cannot be taken away... Therefore, because you speak with unspeakable joy in your salvation, gird your minds for action. Be sober in spirit. The picture here is someone on a long journey and they have a long robe and they have to gird their loins. They have to tie up their robe high around their waist so that they can be purposeful and mindful about the important journey before them. Roll up your sleeves, we would say in our day. Put yourself together. You have the salvation. Get ready now as you inherit it. Discipleship always calls for discipline. Now that you're a child of God, he says, gird your mind for action. Be sober in spirit. In biblical language, being drunk, being asleep, or being ignorant are three ways of describing a person who's caught up in the pleasures of this fallen world. And therefore, throughout the New Testament, we have the imperative, the command that we're committed to sobriety, to being awake, to turning from a life of ignorance because we're not of the world anymore. Having rolled up their sleeves and being sober in spirit, they are to ground their hope, he tells them, of the grace they will receive at the second coming of Christ. Look, look at verse 13. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We've already heard in verse 3, the mercy we've received has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Three times in this passage, we'll end on hope as well. We begin in 1 Peter with hope, and in the middle we have hope, and at the end we have hope. This first Sunday of Advent is the Sunday of hope. Peter's writing to those in the midst of trials and tribulations, those in the middle of suffering and uncertainty. And the word for them is hope. He says to his persecuted readers or hearers, you need to hope in the resurrection of Jesus and in his glorious second coming. But you can't discover hope until you've at least tasted despair. Look at verse 6. And this you greatly rejoice even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. They are in the midst of trials and tribulations, suffering and uncertainty, and they're called to be a people of hope. This is what hope does. Hope brings a future into the present. Hope looks at the end and says, the end is more important than the now, and therefore I can live through the now. Advent hope is eschatological. That means it looks, to, it looks to the return of Christ Jesus. It's based upon both his first coming and his second coming. 
Hope completely on the grace to be brought to you, verse 13, at the revelation, the second coming of Jesus Christ. Wherever we're going, however far away it seems, however impossible it is to get there, Jesus is coming to meet us. The future is coming to the now, both in the Bethlehem baby and then the ultimate return of the cosmic Christ. You see, the reality of Scripture is that none of us ever finishes his or her own story. We never really get to write it or finish it ourselves. Our culture puts so many changes before us. We constantly face this stream of change that carries us away. It means that our own story never comes to a place of completeness. But Jesus comes to meet us before we're ever finished with our story. The coming of the Christ reminds me of that old backyard children's game from a bygone day. Ready or not, we would shout, here I come. Ready or not, Christ calls, here I come. Christ cries that at Christmas. Nothing bad lasts forever. It may last a long, long time, but nothing bad lasts forever. It doesn't go on to eternity. The present is limited. Our pain has cosmic parameters. The future is eternal. The present is flawed. The future is beyond bounds for those who call Jesus Lord. The future is bigger than the present. Yes, it is possible to say, I wonder if this illness will ever end. But it is also possible to say without being trite or superficial, I know it will end. It may rest the rest of my life, but it won't last forever. See, everything in our lives that is incomplete and unfulfilled in our life, Christ will meet and transform and gather into his kingdom on that day. Nothing is beyond redemption. That is the message of Advent hope. The Gentile believers facing persecution were called upon to face it with hope based upon the resurrection of Christ. Look at verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lust, which were yours in your ignorance. Their ignorance associated with worldly living. As children, they are to live in lie of the commands of their father. They're not to be conformed to their former desires, desires which they had in ignorance. Rather, he says in verse 15, they are to be holy like the Holy One. Verse 16, you shall be holy as I am holy, said three times in Leviticus. The Holy One is a a well-known designation for God. Especially Isaiah, his most favorite term for God is the Holy One of Israel. Be holy like I'm holy. Gird up your loins. Tie up your robes. Be sober in spirit. Get ready. Peter then begins to paint a picture of God to these Gentile believers who are pressing their faces against the glass, looking for hope. Of course, he can't say everything there is to know about God. To say, I'm going to give you images of God or snapshots of God is to say, I'll go to the bottomless ocean or the cosmos that has no end. 
But we have three images of God in this part of 1 Peter. First of all, the first image of God is Father. The first image of God is Father. Look at verse 17. And if you address as Father, the one who impartially judges according to each man's work, conduct yourselves in fear during your time, your stay upon the earth. If you address God as Father, we are so familiar with calling God Father, we've missed the power of that image. In fact, in the Old Testament, it is very rare, very rare for God to be called Father, a little bit in the Psalms, a little bit in Isaiah, but not much elsewhere. But Jesus, the Son of God, initiated that that in his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, where he said to his disciples, when they asked him, teach us how to pray, you pray like this, our Father, our Abba, who art in heaven, hallowed or holy be your name. Jesus gives us a powerful new image of God, his Father. It seems so assuming to call the creator of the cosmos, the maker of the heavens and the earth, the word Father. But because of the command of Christ, the children of God can now look at the creator of the heavens and earth and we can say he is our Father. Not only Christ, but Paul says the same thing in Romans 8 when he says, call God Father. He said, we've been adopted as the sons of God and we can cry out, Abba, Father. Because we are in the presence of God's Spirit, we can actually say to God, you are my Father. It's a remarkable thing that we can call God our Father, both then and now. But don't make the mistake of being over-familiar with the Father Just because we're in the family of God, we're his children, it doesn't mean that we should be unassumingly familiar with the Father. Always we should have a a reverence of awe and respect for the one that we call Father. I grew up with a wonderful demonstration of what it means to honor one's father. I watched both my father and my mother show tremendous respect for their fathers. Even as my parents were senior adults themselves and they were grandparents themselves, I can hear my father in his late 50s saying to my grandfather, yes, sir, when he answered my grandfather. I can remember my mother saying to my Papa Howard, from whom I bear my name, yes, sir, when she spoke with him. It didn't matter how wise or how old my own parents became, they still had a relationship that showed respect and deference to their father. In the famous book, To Kill a Mockingbird by Harper Harper Lee, now in print for over half a century, there's a moving scene in the movie version that brings me to tears every time I see it. You see, the book is about relationships. There's a widowed father, Atticus, you remember. He has two children, Jean Louise and Jim. Jim is the older brother and Jean Louise is the younger sister. The setting is Macomb County, Alabama. The time is the Great Depression. And Atticus, the widower, the father is a prominent lawyer. He's asked to take on a case for the state in which he defends an African-American named Tom Robinson. Tom was accused of attacking a woman, which he clearly did not do. Atticus's children find themselves in scuffles on the playground because her father has taken the side of the African 
American. And when the case finally goes to trial, the whole community shows up because nothing bigger than this has ever happened in Macomb before. Everybody's there. The floor is packed. The balcony is packed for the trial. Atticus has a very carefully planned defense. By the end, he shows beyond question that Tom Robinson had not attacked Mayella Ewell. Despite, despite his perfect presiding in the defense, the jury had made up their mind before the case began. They gave the verdict, guilty as charged. In the scene, Atticus begins closing his briefcase and packing up his papers, defeated in the case. He's already planning an appeal and trying to be an encourager, Tom Robinson, that everybody knows hasn't done it. But Atticus himself is also disappointed that in displaying the truth, the jury did not respond to the truth. He turns and begins to walk out of the courtroom. His own children, Jean Louise and Jim, are up in the balcony. The, the African-Americans were not allowed on the floor with the other folk. And, well, because it was too crowded on the bottom floor, Jean Louise and Jim have made themselves in the balcony, found a seat right beside the African-American reverend. Balcony is packed with the African Americans pulling for Atticus for the defense of Tom Robinson. And they hear the shocking word guilty like everybody else, and they are disappointed. But they know that Atticus has given his all in his defense. He has risked his own reputation, his family. He has stood with them in the face of prejudice and partiality. This powerful scene. Atticus turns and begins to exit the courtroom. One by one in the balcony, they begin to stand up in honor of his courage and his fight on their behalf. One, one by one, they, they stand up in the balcony. And in the end, as he's walking out, everybody is standing in the balcony. Everyone is standing except one. His daughter, Jean Louise, is still there on the ground. The black minister says to the lone person seated in the balcony, the one person too young to know how to show respect to her father, the reverend says to her, Miss Jean Louise, stand up. Miss Jean Louise, stand up. Your father is passing. Jean Louise, stand up. Your father's passing. If that, that can be said of a mere mortal man to his child, his daughter, how much more should it be said to us, the children of the Heavenly Father? Stand up in respect. Your father is passing. The next image besides father takes us away from the familiarity, even takes us to a point of fear. Notice verse 17. And if you address his father, the one who impartially judges according to each man's work, conduct yourselves in fear doing your time or your stay upon the earth. The second image of God, the first image is Father. It's a familiar image. The second image may seem contradictory to us at first. It is the image of judge. If you address his Father, the one who impartially judges. The image of Father is so warm. The image of judge seems so cold and removed. But judgment of God is not a contradiction of his fatherly love, but rather a function of his love. What kind of father out there among us would place no moral demands upon his children? 
So just in case the word Abba, Father, sounded a bit soft and permissive, Peter is saying to the newly baptized believers, to these Gentile converts, you have to remember, though he is your father, he will judge impartially based upon your works, your deeds. The fact that God judges us based upon our deeds is, is good news to anyone worried that God has a double standard. They judge some folk by one standard and other folk by another standard. In fact, the language is here is that from 1 Samuel 16, when David is being chosen as king, God does not judge by the face. God is impartial in his judgment. But the fact that God is an impartial judge it's very discomforting for those who thought they had an inside track that somehow God would look or judge them differently that he judges the rest. Now, it's not our salvation that's in question here. He's already told us in the uh, early verses of chapter 1 that we are saved based upon the goodness of Christ, the character of Christ. It is death-proof, and it is time-proof, and it is reach-proof, and it is sin-proof. It's not our salvation that's in question. But even look back at verse 7, he's told them their faith will be tested by fire and find the result of our faith. Our salvation is not in question, but the New Testament is always clear and everywhere and every place that God will judge each one of us individually based upon what we have done with our faith and for his kingdom. In fact, I'll give you a little, a little bit of homework. You go home in the New Testament and find me a single judgment scene that's not based upon works or deeds for Christians. You won't find one. Every time, whether it's Peter or whether it's Christ speaking or whether it's Paul writing, every single time our salvation comes by our faith. But after that, what have we done with our faith? What reward will we receive? Because God is both Father and Judge. And there's a, a third image here, the image of Redeemer. Look at verse 18. Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished, spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith, look at these last words, your faith and your hope are in God. I like the past tense here in verse 18. You were redeemed. Our, our salvation is already sure. You were redeemed. Our salvation is not in question. And our redemption is not based upon something purchased with silver or gold, but rather the price it is paid is the blood of the lamb, the precious unblemished lamb on the cross. It's the idea of paying a ransom for a prisoner of war of paying the price to set a slave free. When God releases all of his children from Egyptian bondage, it is the picture of redemption. They are redeemed out of slavery. They are set free. God is our father, God is our judge, and God is our redeemer. The ransom is Christ's sacrificial suffering. It satisfies the holiness of God and allows God to be both just and the justifier. God can be true to his holy character because our sins are not ignored. They are paid for with the shed blood of Jesus on Calvary. When John the Baptist, the very beginning of the gospel, 
When he sees Jesus, he says, Behold the Lamb of God, meaning the unblemished Lamb of God here in 1 Peter, who takes away, pays the price for the sins of the world. In verse 20, he reminds us that the death of Christ was no accident. It was foreordained by God. The Romans are not in control of the story. The Jewish leaders are not in control of the story. But rather, God is the director of the play. And he has planned for his son to be crucified. He was sent to earth to die for us that we might live. So we can have our faith and our hope in God. When you think about God, think about God as Father. Think about God as an impartial judge who wants to know what we've done with the welcome into his kingdom. And think about God as a redeemer who sent his one and only son to die in our place that he could be both just and justify us. Father, judge, redeemer. A God who allows us to have hope in the death and the resurrection and the return of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Where are you this morning? Are you able to call God Father? Are you working for the kingdom in such a way as to please the judge who judges each one according to our deeds? Are you thankful this morning for the Redeemer, the split, spilt blood of Jesus who paid the ransom for your soul? God the Father, God the Judge, God the Redeemer is a God who calls you into his kingdom. Look at verse 21 again as we close. Who through him are believers in God, who raised Jesus from the dead and gave him glory so that both your faith and your hope are in God. On this first Sunday of Advent, this Sunday of hope, we have our hope early in verse 3 because of the resurrection of Jesus. And then we have our hope because of the second coming of the Christ in verse 13. Here in verse 21, because of the spilt blood of Jesus, we have both faith and hope. I don't know about you, but I'm ready to welcome some Christmas hope this year. Come, Christ. We need to hear the cries of the Bethlehem baby. We need the hope that only the arrival of the kingly child can bring. We need to be reminded that our hope takes a future brings it to the now. Let us pray. Oh God, I know there's people in this room who need the word of hope today. Now I need the word of hope. There's some who sit this morning just like those in Asia Minor to whom the Apostle Peter writes. They are in the necessary trials and tribulations of this side. We know that all the hardships of life come to our houses just like everybody else's. 
But what makes your children different is that we are the children of hope. And so we lean into Christmas this year and we cry aloud to the Father, the one we can call Father, our Judge and Redeemer. Bring us the hope of Christ. Amen.